My handle is Jonathan Blade. I've got a little uh, sinus thing going on from from just being Tell ill me, on the weekend, yeah. and also from like seasonal allergies and stuff, and it is killing me. I got the same thing happening with the seasonal, and every single time I sneeze or cough, I'm like, oh fuck, it's the COVID. Welcome to my podcast. Today I'll be having the first of a series of open discussions on a topic of my guest's choice. It's actually quite fortuitous that today's guest was the first of the interested parties to submit a topic. I've known this person for decades. He is the person who opened the door on what was, after fatherhood, the most significant period of my life. He's a man of many hats, but today he enters the discussion with his media nerd hat firmly in place as we talk about the ascendancy of comic book movies from cult classics to cultural domination. Welcome, my dear old friend, Ray Bullock. Welcome to the show, How are you man. doing? I'm doing well. Tondi with a T because you got tooed. See, and that's the first time my name has ever been mentioned on the show. I mean, I'm going <laughs> oh, to keep I'm that sorry. in. I, I no, no, you're, you're good. I'm going to keep that in because I was planning on introducing myself anyway. Um, okay. People who, who keep up with me directly know that my name is not actually Jonathan Blade. So, yes. Yeah, I was thinking the, about that before because as, as soon as you uh, contacted me about this and we had to reschedule, uh, I'm cleaning out a bunch of stuff like everybody is right now during the quarantine, and I came across the old Grins tape. Grins? Yeah, Grins. you know what? I, I actually found a collection of Grins sets that I transcribed and I was going to put up on um, YouTube for uh, for Matt. But uh, yeah. it's, it's a little bit embarrassing. Like, it, it's very cool that we got to be on Grins and it gave us, really gave us national exposure. But yeah, yeah, those were the days. Yeah. I just remember the uh, the guy who was, like, I think 95 years old, pretty much a PA on the show, was trying to get our names and everything for the host. And you, you told him the name and he said, oh, is your tagline like with a T because he's got two. And all of us just looked at this guy like, we will beat you to death for the good of the land if you speak again. Yeah, why are we here is what, what comes to mind. Right. Oh, but no hating because, you know, that was a, that was actually a, a really interesting experience. So I have nothing but love for our, our Grins oh, days. Most definitely. All right, so so why did you choose this topic, right? Well, uh, I've been I chose this topic because I've actually been talking about it a lot with a lot of what I would call my nerd friends, um, and it just it's so weird to me that these type of things, your comic book movies and your sci-fi literature, your fantasy literature, if you did that, that guaranteed you to be a social outcast when you were in your late teens all the way through your early 20s. But now it's like the inmates have taken over the asylum. And unless you're into those things, you're the social outcast now. Yeah, no, it definitely did have a, in a, in a incredible cultural ascendancy. And I've been thinking about it, and I understand how the, the nerd culture itself became ascendant, but I don't understand how that culture came to dominate the entire media landscape. So I understand how boys became men who became powerful in a society with changing values. And for those men, that culture became something that became mainstream. But it's not just mainstream for those boys to men. It's mainstream for everybody. And I find that very interesting. Well, I find it, I find it interesting, but I also found it to be a fantastic battle plan that, the, and I'll just call it nerd culture had. Well, the first real big major blockbuster nerd superhero, however you want to call it, movie was the first Superman, Christopher Reeve, of course. Uh, that was like the real first big blockbuster. Up until that point, like the small serials they had in the 40s and the little television shows they had on Saturday mornings, but the first blockbuster was the Christopher Reeve Superman. Yes, indeed. That, 300 million internationally. Yeah, and for that time period, I mean, hell, if you want to do the conversion math, I, I'd put that on par with probably what Avengers did. Oh, it was you huge. Know, yeah, yeah. But you weren't being true to the character. Uh, I don't recall in any Superman book that I had 
or have at present, and I have some that are dated back to the 60s, wherever he could multiply himself or reach into his chest and pull out a giant cellophane S to wrap his <laughs> victims in. <laughs> you know, I don't ever remember that ever happening. Uh, so they weren't being really true to the source material, which is every, you know, nerd's you know, critique. Oh, so you, you don't you don't think that uh, Superman the movie is true to the heart of the material? Oh no, it is. Because I feel the, like it is. I feel like it, it might be one of the most honest, uh, true adaptations uh, at, to to the core material ever made. Given that it was the first of its kind, like you would think it would stray way farther from the source material as they're trying to appeal to a broad audience than it did. I think, man, the the heart of Superman, the Truth, justice, the American way, and the way that uh, Christopher Reeves uh, portrayed that character on screen is, man, it's it's Chef's kiss. On, on, my own personal level, it is still one of my favorite comic book adaptations of all time, including every Marvel movie that's come out. Uh, Christopher Reeves made everybody believe that men could fly. Uh, that'll never be in doubt. Yeah, what which was, in the time that it was released is a, a huge antic yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. But they changed a couple of the dynamics of it. Like I said, they gave him some different powers. You know, they did a couple of other small little things. I don't ever remember Richard Pryor appearing in any of the books and solid gold dancers putting on a nuclear suit. You know, stuff like they changed <laughs> some things later on. Yeah, we don't, we, don't, we don't need to include Superman uh, for the quest for peace. That's a... Uh... That's a non-Getson Elseworld story. Hey, without Superman Quest for Peace from Canon Pictures, we would not have gotten Masters of the Universe, that fine, fine gem of crap. Uh, <laughs> but what, uh, my point being is that they changed it just enough so that it would piss off the diehard fans. Well, Superman never did this, never did this. So other people could sit there and say, well, the nerds don't like it, so it's okay if I like it. See, I feel like there was a uh, universality there just because, one, it was a super expensive blockbuster in a time where, like, I I think that Star Wars, Superman, and Jaws came out in a fairly close period of time. Yeah. And those three blockbusters represented something special because... There wasn't much out like that. Like, uh, the studios didn't spend money on movies like that up to that point. True. So people had never seen anything like that. So whether whether it it was good or not, it would have been appealing to a, uh, a broader audience. It just also happens to be a, a really good movie. Um, but, but you made my point there. Whether it was good or not, it was still going to appeal to a lot of people. And I think after that, they, you know, like they did the whole... Quest for Peace, they did the whole Richard Pryor, oh, well, it doesn't matter if it's good, they'll still eat it up with a spoon, which is a philosophy that I believe DC Films has kept to this day. <laughs> uh, but Yeah, their, their money men kind of run the uh, the board there. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was true up until recently when they start being more experimental. I will say that, although it doesn't seem that any one person is at the helm of what Warner is doing with those movies, mm-hmm. the fact that they uh, they stopped trying to uh, have a Marvel-style showrunner, uh, somebody who is the overarching manager of the project. And I think they actually do have somebody like that, but they're not doing it in the same way. So these properties can hypothetically be connected, but they're not literally connected right now, I think is probably yeah. the best way to go because nobody is going to be able... And I, I think this might be true across the board. I think 10 years of studios saying, man, we need to get ourselves a cinematic universe there's a possibility that might be have gone by the wayside because nobody can do what Marvel did. I'm not DC sure what tried. the combination of magic was, but yeah, they just they they kind of wasted money trying to get a plan together to do what Marvel did. And ten years later, nobody has done what the uh, Disney did with the MCU. No, and it won't be done again. I don't think the, you can't capture lightning twice. I mean, DC tried. And I'll go on record, I don't care about the Snyder Cut. It can be dead and buried for all I care. I don't want to see it. It, it's, it. it shouldn't exist. They fired you for a reason. Move on with your life. But I think, but back to the rise of it, then the next big one that you had was Batman. 
Michael Keaton, Tim Burton. Which is like 11 years later. Yeah, because they fell back into the whole, oh, it's still nerd stuff. Well, then Michael Keaton, Batman, Batman already had a massive popularity with non-nerds. Uh, the skater culture adopted him as kind of a mascot. You know, I remember tons of kids when I was that age wearing Batman t-shirts who had never read a Batman comic book in their life, but it was like the popular logo of the time. See, I feel like the Batman movie capitalizes on something that is fairly special. There are two factors that kept people around for comic books uh, and brought them on in a uh, a time of, of people feeling disenfranchised. And that factor, the Margaret Thatcher era British comic book writers, uh, because they felt disenfranchised. And then in America, Frank Miller. So oh, Frank yeah. Miller... And those Margaret Thatcher era uh, British comic book writers wrote some really cynical stuff that kept fans on past their, their childhood, basically, or might have even brought them in in their early adolescence. And people remember that. They they remember that transition as transitioning to something more mature. They might even associate that with maturity, even though it's not. It's kind of a sophomoric between stage from uh, childhood into adolescence and then on to whatever follows. And, you know, a lot of people stop there because they were like, ah, this is adulthood. But I yeah. think that brought fans on in a way that those fans stayed fans even as they got older. They're like, no, this is mature stuff. Not Frank Miller or British writer, but I remember showing my mother uh, an issue of the um, – Punisher, and I don't know, I don't remember who wrote it, but I think it was uh, it was either Walsh Portacio or Jim Lee that did the art, and it was super gritty. And I was like, yeah, comic books are, they're not just for kids. I mean, look at this. This is like gritty. And, and she ripped it in half in front of me, and she said, don't ever bring anything like this in my house ever, ever again. <laughs> well, uh, but that's also a great point, especially of the rise of it. Uh, I mean, you have other things besides comic books, um, like you said, they started to hold on to their readers throughout their gro uh, throughout their growth. I mean, back in the old days of it, it was comic books were just a kid's fodder. It was just their toys at the time, and they just kept writing and writing for those kids over and over and over again. None of them started to really change with their readers. I want to say until the late seventies, early eighties, but that. And that started to give leeway to other genres of quote-unquote nerddom. Uh, let's take the Harry Potter franchise, for example. This, it's not dying. It's not going anywhere. And it's been, well, hell, it's been 20 years at this point. And I think that's because as she started to grow as a writer, her readers started to grow as well. So she kind of matured right along with them. She did, and, and think, then she uh, she yeah. kind of took her legs out from underneath her with the uh, with the fantastic yeah, beast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't disrespect people, especially when you're writing a bunch of books about respecting people. Yeah, yeah, don't, yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that, lady. You 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 messed up. I don't know if I can say the f word on your show, but you messed up. It's really open. I have lots of awkward, random f's throughout the podcast. You're good to go, but. Then you got people like your George R. R. Martin, who, and I don't care what anybody says, I love the dude, but I've got different reasons for that, who pretty much saw all these people that, you know, grew up with, like, the different, like, Lady Bird and, you know, Dragon Slayer and all that, and said, hey, uh, they were lonely a good portion of their life. What do they want? <laughs> they want sex and a lot of death. So let's give them that. And he was around for a while. People forget that he was writing sci-fi and fantasy stuff from 1980 on. Uh, he was one of the writers for the old Beauty and the Beast series with uh, Ron Perlman. Yeah, I don't know how people didn't understand, even if you think that this stuff is for uh, a younger audience, how people didn't understand that sex is, like straight up sex, is the real thing missing from a lot of this. I guess it's because they want to bring it to a, especially now, uh, when the media, when the movie industry found out that the magic key to making a billion dollars on a movie was making it for the entire the entire family audience, but sex was the magic key to bringing in a more consistent audience for I feel like anything. Oh, uh, agreed. Especially agreed. now sex because sells. there's no sex 
in a lot of the sanitized media that we consume because there doesn't have to be because there's free porn everywhere. So you don't mm-hmm. see as many studio films that have hardcore like sexuality in them. But um, I, I would like to see something as sexy as uh, Patrick Willems recently did a an episode where he was talking about the Catherine Zeta-Jones and Antonio Banderas movie, The Mask of Zorro. Yes. And and how it was an incredibly fun action movie, but it was so damn sexy. Mm-hmm. And he's right. That, that sexiness, that Banderas sexiness and stuff like Desperado and uh, the Zorro movie, that is a huge draw. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, and how... that also explains why the sequel to Mask uh, Zorro, The Legend of Zorro, tanked the box office because they had a kid, and we all know once you have a kid, a lot of sex just disappears. <laughs> uh, your truth is painful, but yes, but, it is true. No, that was the rise of it. I think. I think a lot of your sci-fi writers, your comic book writers, all of that realized that hey, because we have a little bit of a older fan base now we can start throwing in things like sexuality and sex and all of that and i think that was another boost into pretty much them taking over because you had a whole group of children that their escape was a sci-fi and comic book genre that it was an escape for me anyway you know uh the lonely weird kid who like to isolate himself, we had to have something, and that's what we had. And then when we got older, it was like, oh, we still have this, and there's boobies too. Awesome. Yeah, that umbrella is a pretty big weed too. That is a <laughs> yeah. that is a pretty big umbrella. There's a lot. There are a lot of us. Yeah, I so, spent I mean, money it, on it, comic books like they were crack cocaine back in the day when I got a job. Like a ridiculous percentage of my income went to uh, going to uh, Frank's store. Sometimes twice a week to pick up my haul plus a little bit extra. Oh, dude, I remember. I ran I ran into you a couple of times at Frank's store and also a couple of times at KB Toys when we worked at that restaurant together. The the evil flingers slash, uh, yeah. what was it called in waiting? Yeah. Shenanigans. Uh, shenanigans. <laughs> shenanigans. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God, there are pieces of my soul that are still attached to that wall. Yeah, on the tchotchkes, yeah. <clears throat> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh. There's, a, there's a picture of a man with a bar handle mustache, and your soul is somewhere in that bar handle mustache. Right. Well, if, <laughs> and if I could go on, also on record again, if anyone ever sees me working at one of those big box restaurant stores again, just please... Just take me out back and put me down like I was Sea Biscuit with a broken leg because I just I can't. Oh God, wasted youth. Anyway, no, it's, uh, it's not wasted if you can take some experiences away from it. Um, oh, very true. Actually, and I, have some I, great experiences. I, I purchased Waiting recently because I hadn't seen it in a while. Yeah, and I watched it, and it's a it's a, a dumbass movie, and it's not really about anything. But it's it's also quite honest. Like they're exaggerated a little bit, but it, that is pretty much. Robert said uh, I was talking to Robert about it, and he's like, "Yes, it is pretty much up and down. Not the today restaurant experience. Uh, probably people are more intelligent about their lives. They don't think that there's no future or care about that, like uh, they did in the '90s. We were like, eh, life's meaningless because we don't have any challenges, so we're just gonna party till we die.' But yeah, these kids today will never know what it's like to do a bump of cocaine off of something in dry storage. I tell you, they're spoiled. They're spoiled, I say. Or off the back of the toilet, or or and neither do we. Um, no, of course not. No, but, that never happened ever. But, but waiting is pretty close to that experience. Yeah, it's it yeah. pretty close to the the genuine experience. Well, I, I was actually talking, and this goes back to the topic at hand. Uh, that whole realm was an escape for me, especially during that time period. Like, I mean, I, I spent money on comic books and tchotchkes that were, like, nerd-related, like, nobody's business back in those days because it was like, ah, you know, this is life and blah, 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 and I uh, don't know if I'll ever get out of here. And I mentioned that to uh, a younger person that I know that's working in the restaurant field now. It's like, yeah, that's why everybody likes it now. That's why everybody's into nerd culture now. 
because we know there's no hope anymore. <laughs> uh, it's not that we, we're lost without hope. It's like we know there's no hope. We know it's not going to happen. The majority of us are going to be working two jobs for the rest of our lives. We know this. Uh, and I'm like, damn, that that's bleak. And she looked right at me and said, yeah, I know. Now i got to go do some coke and dry storage. <laughs> so so it's it's – is it just modern day escapism? Is it is it our escape, or is it as um, Kevin Smith uh, hypothesizes the modern day religion? I think. Well, I mean, even I think all escapism is a religion at some point. You know, hence the term "you do it religiously." I think religion was an escape for a lot of folks in the early onsets of religion. Um, Especially, I mean, you're especially in this country and the society that we have. Oh, hey, this is completely untamed land. We have to commit a couple of genocides in order to have a house, and you got to build it, and your family's probably going to die when they're seven years old because of uh, a hangnail or something of that nature. <laughs> but you can escape every Sunday and hear these words that this person is spewing out that seem magical and seem unattainable, and you can do that for a while to escape what you had to go through for this week. So, I mean, I think even religion is a form of escapism. Well, but that's and, just me. I'm not meaning to piss people off, and I know you'll probably get some emails over that. But Oh, uh, believe me, I won't. The uh, the three people that listen to the podcast are, are very elevated in their thinking, and uh, so we're, we're going to be all good. Thanks, Shahir. No, <laughs> I, see, I, I don't... I don't agree with the modern-day religion hypothesis. I do think it's a modern-day institution. It might even be a social institution, these things existing. But uh, religion creates a uh, framework for society, uh, makes people more manageable. It makes it helps society exist. Now, those rules can be replaced by other things. I think the modern-day religion is capitalism. I think that, uh, especially for Americans, our modern-day religion is capitalism, which is, is poison. It's so, it's so dangerous. But uh, it's what we have, so that's what we're working with right now. Uh, I, I, there's a lot of truth in that statement. I'll, I'll very much agree. That's why we need to reopen this country, and 100,000 people dying is going to be totally fine. Um, that's how you learn I your can't... lessons through capitalism, I guess. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But not to get too far into that whole fuck 45. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we got up we got up to the uh, the eighty nine Batman. And... Yeah, we got to. Oh yeah. Well, then you uh, then you had like that slew that just came out of where like, everybody wanted to be the eighty nine Batman. Yeah, that followed the eighty nine Batman. Just a slew of comic book movies that tried to came out uh, that come out. And I think the part that they missed, they went so far away from what those books were supposed to be. I well, mean, you know, they were working with the... I actually like I like the Billy Zane Phantom. I thought that was pretty true to the story and all that. So you know, I have never problem. seen the Billy Zane Phantom. If if you're a Phantom fan, for people that don't know the Phantom except from uh, the Defenders of the Universe cartoon, Defenders of the on, Earth, of uh, the Earth, Defenders of the Earth. Excuse me, I am so sorry. I, I lost nerd points there. No, you're just uh, you're not also, as old as I am, so I yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, uh, which is also on Amazon Prime, and they're not sending me a check at all for to keep plugging them. <laughs> but um, now, uh, I thought that one was pretty true to it. But like the the Judge Dread that Sylvester Stallone did. I love. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that had in common with the actual Judge Dread books was the title Judge Dread, and that's just it. I think. They kept it, they tried to keep it alive by trying to change it to appeal to a broader audience when they didn't have to. They could just put forth what was already there, and they were going to appeal to a broader audience, which is what ended up happening with, like, your Iron Man movies and Spider-Man 2s and things of this nature. They, they thought they had to change it in order to get people involved. But due to the fact that it had already been mainstream for so long. When they started to present the actual stories, it was much more palatable for everybody, and that's yeah, why they see, went along. I think that Spider-Man Two is is very faithful to the uh, the older the Ditko canon that uh, Sam Raimi wanted yeah. to put on screen. But Iron yeah. Man, 
I feel like Iron Man's its own beast. Like Tony Stark, the uh, the things that defined Tony Stark before Robert Downey Jr. was that he was unstable and he was an arrogant asshole, but he wasn't funny, <laughs> and he wasn't really as self-aware as uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is. Like Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark knows who he is. He he knows those qualities that he has that people are like, ah, I, I both love this guy and kind of hate him at the same time. Um, well, see, I think the comic book Tony Stark, Stark is book. not that that aware of himself. He's he's just an arrogant asshole. He uh, because well, he's see, a rich he's a rich guy and he thinks he's the smartest man in the room. When in the comic books, he's not even the smartest man in the room. Reed Richards is the smartest man in the room. So, yeah. Well, see, that's just it. I think uh, I I I hate to disagree with you there. I think in the books, Tony Stark knows his shortcomings. He knows all of that, much like you said. But also, like Robert Downey Jr., he doesn't care. He just doesn't care because he doesn't have to care because he's a billionaire. And he does think he's the smartest person. Even in the um, the Avengers films, when he and uh, Bruce Banner are having back and forth, you have that sense of, I feel like I'm better, Tony Stark, I feel like I'm better than you. No, he definitely, that's but that's because he is. He he. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Tony Stark is the smartest man in the room. And because well, of that, in the not. modern comic books, he's also the smartest man in the room, but it wasn't always that way. It was, it was oh, Reed Richards. He couldn't introduce Reed Richards because they hadn't bought out Fox yet. No, no, that's, that is true. Yeah. Um, and at this point, I'm very curious to see that. Oh, I'm I, a huge I, Fantastic Four fan, and I don't really see a way that they will not. There's a huge no, chance of effing it up. it up. They're going to eff it up. I, I bow down to the mouse. I really do. Because what they've done in the last 10 years has been amazing. Amazing. Uh, I, will, I will line up to see every single one of those films. But don't right, hold think... on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let, let's save that for a beat until we get there. Because there is pretty, plenty of praise to be given to what Disney has accomplished, which is one of the most amazing cultural things that we've probably seen in our lifetime. But before we get there, there was the 90s. We got through the 90s. Superhero movies became big box office, hypothetically because of Batman. Did anybody actually achieve the kind of box office that that Batman did? No, nope. nobody did. But I don't think they ever went as hard, like budget wise, because it's all about it's about solid writing and getting the right actors and um, having your movie look good. But it's it's mostly about money. Yeah, I'm the only person in the world who did not like Tim Burton's Batman. I think. Oh, you didn't like Tim Burton's Batman. I Both did not them? like Tim Burton's Batman. You, you didn't like Returns either? No. No, I did not. Oh, well, let me ask you this. Do you like Tim Burton generally as a director? I love Tim Burton. I enjoy the hell out of Tim Burton. In my own personal opinion, uh, Helen Bottom Carter, Johnny Depp, and Tim Burton can make movies until the cows come home, and I will watch all of them. <laughs> uh, I think I'm the only person in the world who actually clapped a little bit at the end of Alice in Wonderland because I enjoyed the film. When, when Johnny Jeff like did that little that. dance, you clapped? I did. I oh, did. It, it hurts. Beautiful. It hurts. Stop, Ray. Your words are kryptonite. Oh. But no, um, they couldn't recapture. I, I don't think they could recapture what Batman did because they couldn't find a property that was already established in people that didn't know the property. Like I was saying, Batman was already established through a lot of skater culture and a lot of what was hip at the time, even with people who had never read a Batman comic book because it was like the symbol that was adopted for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And there was no other comic book character at that time who had had that, you know, you didn't see a lot of people, you know, with a, well, let's just go with judge dread, judge dread written on their book covers in school or a judge dread t-shirt who wasn't already a comic book fan. No, that's so true, think, but uh, they those people didn't get to experience the Simon Bisley Judge Dredd directly. I don't that, know if the more recent Dredd it. movie would have done well in the 90s, but man, that was a good movie. The, the Stallone movie was very much a 90s movie, but it wasn't Judge Dredd. It was a Stallone movie. Oh, I agree. 150% I agree. Well, that's what I'm saying. They changed it too much, feeling like they could appeal to the people who weren't already a little bit of a fan. You didn't need to appeal to people that weren't already a little bit of a fan with Batman because it was adopted as a logo for a lot of the youth. Yeah, and it was a pre-existing property. Uh, it was something that people already knew about. It was a generational investment. 
So yeah. if there hadn't been a Batman TV series in the second uh, 70s, off of which they could have built uh, Capital, and there, if there hadn't been a Batman cartoon and uh, seeing Batman on the Super Friends, yeah. then uh, if you didn't have that, that cachet already built in, then you wouldn't have been yeah. able to do a Batman that was even as close as it was, probably. So there's also exactly. that, that generational that generational investment is, is very important. Exactly. You come out you with um, the, films, the films that came out in the 90s that were comic book related, a lot of those properties didn't have that pre-existing acknowledgement. I mean, you had your Roger Corman, like Captain America and all that, but it was also a Roger Corman movie, so <laughs> there was no way in hell that was going to do anything. Well, that one never got released, did it? Uh, it did uh, direct-to-video. Oh, that's right. See, uh, it was a Fantastic Four that never got released. Yeah, and with good reason, because, yeah. oh, my God, that was so awful. I have a copy of that still, and I'm just like, oh, Jesus. You know, it's now that we're so we're in the 90s, there actually is a 90s cheap superhero film that I'm a fan of. And it's Which not one? that it's a good movie, but I liked Dolph Lundgren's Punisher movie. I love Dolph Lundgren's Punisher movie. Yeah, like the only I problem thought... with that movie for me is Dolph Lundgren. Up until... The Netflix series, that was one of the more accurate portrayals of the character. Yeah. I love I, Thomas Jane, don't get me wrong. Hung is a great series, but don't ever do another Punisher film. Yeah, I was not a big fan of Thomas Jane's Punisher movie. I, yeah. Or Ray Stevens, I think his name is. So I liked Warzone. I, I also I didn't Warzone. think it was a great movie, but I liked it more than I liked Thomas Jane's movie. I agree. It wasn't a great movie, but I liked it a lot more than Thomas Jane's. Uh, whenever you say, hey, John Travolta is going to be your big bad, I'm like, yeah, no, I don't, no, I'm good. And then I'm good. And, the, and then we get to a place, as we're going through the 90s, we actually get to a place where changing the property actually makes a difference for the uh, for the draw. It actually brings in people, and we get to that place where it starts changing the character in the comic book, which is something that we'd seen before, actually. I remember after the... Tim Burton Batman movies and the comic book, Batman goes away for a time, Dick Grayson becomes Batman, and when Batman comes back, he has the all-black costume yeah. to mirror yeah. what's going on in the uh, in the movies. But mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the 90s, we get the iconic Blade the Vampire Hunter. Blade was not at all that character before Wesley Snipes, but after Wesley Snipes, much like Robert Downey Jr., after Wesley Snipes, Blade could only be Wesley Snipes. I'm not, I'm not according to Disney, because someone else could be... But anyway, no, I can't. Uh, Mahershala Ali. Mahershala Ali mm -hmm. is, is, the, is the perfect choice for that if they're going for somebody to be like a Wesley Snipes-style Blade. So I've got I'm, nothing but love for that decision. But even uh, in the 90s, I think the only other real property that became like a huge standout besides Batman, of course, then you start getting in the Batman animated series and things of that nature, which college students were literally changing their class schedule around so they could watch episodes. I, I think we have to talk about the impact that X-Men animated series had on that push. Yeah, that and the uh, the 90s uh, Spider-Man cartoon brought in a whole new generation of fans. I liked the idea of both those shows, and I thought in their execution, like because they, they had some strong, mature ideas in the shows, but in execution, they didn't they didn't execute on those mature ideas because they wanted to do something that wasn't completely serialized. They wanted to do just episode, 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 episode. Uh, so when they'd start doing things that were more serialized, it was later on. And I didn't love either one of those shows. Oh, At the time, I wanted them to night. both be more like like BTAS, like Batman the Animated Series. It was more maturely written. Even after it stopped being a primetime show and became an afternoon show, and the, the writing yeah. changed a little bit, it was still a, a way better written show than either the X-Men show or the Spider-Man show. I agree. Well, not every 90s cartoon could have been Gargoyles. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, Gargoyles was fantastic. It was fantastic. I, uh, I can't wait to uh, make the movie already, for crying out loud. <laughs> you know? uh, but back to uh, the whole timeline of it, I think that started to open up a little bit more of non-fans. It was a slow, gradual process. I also am a firm believer that without the X-Men cartoon, without the Spider-Man cartoon, we wouldn't have gotten the movies. Oh, I mean, you are probably 100% correct there. 
Yeah. There's always going to have to be a, a feeling out of the waters, and that's also probably why those were the first two. Maybe not so much for Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I think a Spider-Man movie was kind of inevitable, but uh, the X-Men movie definitely built off the uh, the cachet built by Chris Claremont's run that people were familiar with, and then mm-hmm. off of that cartoon. Well, and I, I guess just the iconic Jim Lee imagery, even if people of the 90s didn't know anything about the... Who's a writer for Jim Lee's artist run who wrote the x-men at that point in time had chris claremont come back to the book or did jim jim Byrne write i, I think he went through a couple of writers at that time so when they they um, marvel was doing the big shake up because they lost so many people due to image yeah uh, but that was after and, that so when they when yeah. when when marvel launched the no superlative x-men series jim lee was the main artist for that and i he think it might have been chris claremont again actually but, um, I think you're right, but I'm not 100 percent on that. But uh, Chris Claremont's images, his yeah. his his uh, renditions of the X Men were on T-shirts and lunch boxes and everywhere. So that but was see, part of that just, too. I think the, the the comics, even though they were being sold in millions and millions of copies, that's only because the diehards are buying up every cross collectors market. Yeah, uh, type of thing. It wasn't because of the people that hadn't been exposed to it were all of a sudden becoming comic book fans. I mean, you had a lot of kids were, but your teenagers and your adults weren't there with it. Now, granted, a lot of the kids were watching the X-Men cartoon, and some of their parents had to watch it with them to keep the kids quiet. And I've actually talked to a couple people that said, yeah, I got into X-Men because my kid was watching the X-Men cartoon, and I got into it like that. Really? Yeah. A friend of mine, Ron, actually, who was much older who is now an avid comic book reader and fan, got into that whole genre because he had a son who watched X-Men in the afternoon. Yeah, I could definitely uh, see that being a thing. There's anime stuff that I only looked at because Grayson was into it, so I do I do feel that. Well, see, that's just... I think that one of the reasons why it has ingratiated the culture so much is because... People can actually see it. They don't have to pick up the book or they don't have to, you know, find the 15 issues that reference this, that, or the other thing. They oh, yeah, I mean, the books money. are now just a lost leader to promote the other media that makes the, the money. Exactly. Although we'll see well, how that how that paradigm shifts uh, in the age of COVID, in the age of I'm COVID-19. Still, true, true. But I'm still going to stick with the famous Stanley quote. Uh, comic books are just like boobs. Yeah, you can see them on the internet, but there's something about holding one in your hand. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, Stan Lee. <laughs> you gotta, uh, Papa Stan taught us a lot, but anyway. Papa Stan did teach us a lot. He uh, He's yeah. pretty significant in my history as a comic book nerd. But oh, uh, yeah. So we get, okay. to the, uh, we get to the 2000s. We get to the X-Men movie. I didn't love the X-Men movie, and in the big picture... I don't think it is as important as some people imagine. Some people say that Blade is the beginning of the boom. I don't think that it is. Some people say that the X-Men movie is the beginning of the boom. I don't think that that is either. I actually don't think the first X-Men movie is very good. But I agree with you there, and there's something I'll go back and watch, and I'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's nice. I think the beginning of the big boom was the first Spider-Man film. Exactly. The first Spider-Man movie is the beginning I mean, of the modern boom. I, everything up to that helped helped it boom because people were used to seeing superheroes on uh, their screens and that nature. And plus, again, back a big generational buildup. Everybody knew who Spider-Man was because he had been around forever. But you mentioned something earlier, if I could backtrack to it. Stanley had a reality show called Do You Want to Be – Who Wants to Be a Superhero? Uh-huh. For a while. If you haven't seen it, it's 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 cheeky, it's fun. But in that one of the characters, one of the people on the show, thanks Stan Lee at one point because he actually said, when I was coming up, I did not have a dad. I had a single mom. Spider-Man taught me how to be respectful. He taught me right from wrong. He ta- uh, Reed Richards taught me it was important to study in school. And I think, again, it's back to that escapism. A lot of people coming up couldn't escape into comic books because, well, even though comic books were everywhere, they were in comic book stores and not a lot of people had access to them, but they had access to the cartoons 
they had access to the films eventually. They were much more accessible than the actual comic books. And I think with the advent of so much media, because this is also the time in the early 2000s when you're seeing the rise of the internet, we had the access to it. I mean, Stanley himself came up with that whole slew of superheroes that were internet superheroes. I forget the name of them. They lasted all of about two weeks, but it was still a thing. But that puts us in the 2000 market, and you have that big boom of Spider-Man. And I feel it's because, again, that whole escapism. And people were looking for more of an escape because anybody who lives through the 90s, it was not a happy decade. A lot of us were wearing flannel and not bathing a lot, and people, you know, discovered patchouli again. It was not a good time. <laughs> there were a lot of stinky people in the uh, the late nineties. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> and but back to back to two thousand, uh, the two thousands and the big boom. Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, one thing that uh, the two thousands brings us with that first Spider-Man movie. Is something that I was reading an article from the New York Times and one from the uh, New York Fine Arts something 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 about this very subject. And two things, or one thing that both uh, articles covered was the idea that these things became vehicles for increasingly more impressive special effects. And I think that holds true from that first Spider Man movie. CGI in that movie, that final swing. Is still yeah. incredibly impressive. I mean, it looks like CGI, but it's still incredibly impressive. The effects in general in that movie, it's still a good-looking movie. Even the things that you're like, eh, that might not hold up. Or like the, the train scenario in Spider-Man 2, still amazing. Yeah. And oh, agree. with the ascendancy oh, you... of, of CGI and them uh, being able to just supplement practical effects. So you still have a scene that can be shot practically, so you have the... Um, just the impressive nature of having something that you can put your hands on, you actually see that building crumble, whatever, and then you just give the little extra zip with the CGI and you come out with something that is impressive. It's not something that they had before to that level. It's kind of like a, a magic dividing line. Well, I guess Jurassic Park is the, is the real magic dividing line between before CGI was super impressive and when it wasn't, but nobody achieved Jurassic Park levels of uh, of quality in their CGI, and probably until the 2000s. So, Spider-Man is, is what I consider that dividing line for superhero movies. Like, the, there were I things think done... Spider-Man was, for special effects, what, uh, for that particular time period, what Star Wars was for special effects for that time period. Yeah, Spider-Man, and Lord of the Rings, too. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. But, you know, Spider-Man is playing in this, in this particular arena. So I, I think... It, it's not just the superhero aspect of it, it's the spectacle aspect, mm-hmm. uh, but it, but the, the hero aspect and the larger-than-life aspect thing can cross a bunch of genres that are action-oriented, and, but we, and we happen to get, in that period, we got the Spider-Man movie, but we also got Lord of the Rings movie. It was a pretty cool time to be a moviegoer. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Uh, but that's just it. It's You have people... Of all, because a lot of these characters and a lot of these franchises have been around fifty plus years. I mean, what isn't it like a uh, Superman's eighty seventh year or something of that nature? Uh, it's it's like his seventy ninth, eighty second, something something crazy. Yeah, so yeah, he's, something he's, insane. What was it? Thirty eight, nineteen thirty eight. Yeah, so, so like I mean, eighty second. You have all those people that are still alive that have seen all of these franchises. I mean, your your Iron Man's, your Thor's, your Lord of the Rings, uh, all of that. And now they're finally, and they know them from their youth, even if they weren't fans of them or read them or anything of that nature. They heard the name when they were younger from somebody. And now they can go back with a little bit of nostalgia and also a little bit of curiosity and actually see it in front of them and, and all of its epic grand scale and yeah, it is that something i think special. is also part of it no it is it's definitely I mean, something of... special uh and i would have killed to have the experience that my son is and it's nothing to my son because his his whole life is filled with spectacle every day mm-hmm. there's something spectacular that he can just see at will so it's not yeah. the same <laughs> he's probably kind of a little bit callous to it all but uh, I would kill to have the experience of seeing those things through um, a 10-year-old's eyes. Oh, uh, man. Oh, man. I can't even imagine. Like the... Uh, the I, I mean, I would love to. 
and we'll uh, we'll get there. But the, the feelings that I had seeing the Avengers on screen, yeah, like as an adult, are almost indescribable. To so to be able to have seen those through a ten year old's eyes, I can't even imagine. Well, see, and I think that's also part of why it's become such this big cultural movement because people are saying we finally get to see this move and talk like we thought it would. It's no longer just on the page. The dragon is real. You know, it's going to fly for us. Or Thor is actually going to hit somebody with the, with the hammer. We actually get to see it now. And I think that's why it's become such a big thing. Because you can read about it and you can talk about it with your friends or you may pretend when you're in your younger years. But when you can actually see it happening, that's an experience you don't want to pass up and you can't pass up. I made the joke when I uh, think after the... Were you with us when we went to see uh, Spider-Man 2, the midnight showing? I don't think so. I don't okay, think so. Uh, it was a famous... I remember... That's another story for another time. But I remember sitting down and seeing the first Spider-Man, and I made a joke about it on stage for probably a lot longer than I should have. Uh, for everybody that was sitting there in that theater that had grown up with Spider-Man and we started to watch it, if any one of us would have started masturbating, we all would have been cool with it because we would have understood. <laughs> we would have understood. You know, actually, I don't, I don't really care for Tobey Maguire that much. He was a still... little bit. <laughs> yeah, but I still, you know, I still respect those as the um, the, the the cinematic benchmarks that they are. Oh yeah. And oh, also yeah. Uh, heading into that, that, or I guess preceding that era a little bit, uh, something else I want to talk about as we go through this is, please, you know, we're talking about the significance and how these be became cultural juggernauts, but there is another cultural juggernaut that's kind of putting along. Uh, at the same time that, that these these movies are gaining ascendancy, that's Star Wars. Oh yeah, Star Wars is 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 oh, there yeah. right on the side the entire time and most of the time as far as pop cultural cachet. Star Wars has a greater pop cultural cachet than all of the the comic book franchises combined. Even when there's not a, a current movie, and somehow George Lucas, he may or may not be a a brilliant creative. A genius, but man, the dude marketed the hell out of a franchise, and it never left the pop cultural mind space. There were always comic books, there were always toys. Uh, he did the re-releases, and then the prequels, and all the while yeah. keeping uh, Star Wars in the cultural space for a new generation. It was brilliant. So my question to you is, what separates the pop cultural cachet that and the ascendancy of these comic book movies in the space from what Star Wars? has done, has achieved, and is in the uh, the pop cultural headspace? Nothing. I don't think anything separates them. Uh, I really I really don't. I think they're on par, if, like you said, if not even surpassing it. Like, But again, we have generations now that have seen or heard, I mean, even people that haven't seen Star Wars, which, by the way, if you find somebody who says, I've never seen a Star Wars movie, one, they're probably lying to sound cool and hipsterish and they're drinking an IPA out of their, you know, bio-friendly straw jockstrap or whatever the hell they're wearing to sound cool. But if they legitimately haven't seen it, please ask them, what was it like to be raised by wolves? <laughs> uh, because that's the only thing there. But much like with the com even with the comic book thing, people are getting upset with the new ones and saying, oh, well, that's not my version of it, and blah, 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 blah. And I think one of the things that we have to remind ourselves, especially with this big cultural boom, and for those of us who have been a part of it all of our lives, not all of it's meant solely for you. And I think there's a little bit of selfishness, and you can see that in the Star Wars fans uh, as well as the comic book fans. Uh, I, yeah, I was the, the age of everybody having a voice has been <laughs> the biggest poison to pop culture that I could ever imagine. Yeah. Who would who would have thunk it? <laughs> yeah, they're uh, they're not for you. Shut up. Fine, you know, go home, smoke a joint, take a poop, eat some Fruit Loops, do whatever it is you got to do. This one's not a hundred percent for you. It's still enjoyable as hell, and I know it's enjoyable as hell because you paid to see it just like I did. And you're talking about it, and you're continuing to talk about it, so it's done its job. Uh, I sat in on a panel at last year's con, 
and they were talking about Robin. I forget the guy's name. He wrote. Uh, he was one of the writers on Long Halloween. Loeb. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Don't uh, it messes <laughs> with your memory. Uh, but anyway, he said, "What do you? Who is your favorite?" He pointed out some guy in the audience who said some snotty remark about it not being written like it's supposed to. Which, first of all, if you don't have any idea how it's supposed to be written because you're not a comic book writer, you're a guy buying the stuff. So. You're a mark, as wrestling fans would say, sit down and shut up and force eat what I'm feeding you. But uh, the guy asked him, he said, who's your favorite Robin? And he said, well, I don't know. It's like, it doesn't matter because Robin is not for you. Robin has nothing to do with you. It's not for you. Your guy is Batman. You follow Batman. Robin is there for the seven or eight-year-old who wants to be like Batman one day but can't 100% identify with Batman. So we put this little guy in there so they have something to look at. says, oh, that reminds me of me. And then eventually as they grow up, they're going to start to like Batman more, and a new person's going to come along and look at Robin. And then he went on to say, that's who the new Jedi are. They are for this new generation. They are for the people that are discovering it, because whether or not you want to admit it, you're going to die one day. <laughs> and we need people that are still going to be interested in this so we can take their money exactly <laughs> exactly again back to what you said earlier man uh, capitalism is the is the religion damn straight it is damn straight so we get to the era of studios trying desperately to make some money off of these franchises in the previous decade, it was Batman they were trying to follow. In the decade before that, it was the Superman model, but nobody was really trying to follow Superman. It was too expensive. It was too risky. Exactly. The uh, the effects weren't there. To make a movie the level of Superman, The uh, you would have to take a huge risk that no studio felt that it, they could afford. Uh, it became easier by the 2000s because of, because of CGI, basically, that they could do something of scope and of scale and believe that they would get a return on their investment. So everybody's like, oh, well, Spider-Man did block gangbusters. It's one of the most successful movies of all time. Let's do it. And so they tried, and they tried, and crappy movies were made. We had, what, the uh, the Fantastic Four movies, both of them. Oh, God. We had some, uh, some X-Men movies, which, they're not bad. X2 is actually quite good, but... You know, it's still a movie of its time. Um, yeah. You have things like, uh, what, uh, Superman Returns, which is an interesting film and is not bad, but it's, no. it's, kind, it's kind of boring. And I'm not I'm not sure what Brian Singer Superman was going Return. for there. The pacing is what killed that movie. Yeah. Uh, I, saw I also don't like Lois Lane. I don't, I don't like that. Uh, who was that actress that played Lois Lane in that movie? Uh... uh... Four person Amy Adams. It, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. She was. She was not great. I did like Spacey as Lex Luthor. I thought he did a great job, mm -hmm. and I would would have liked to have and that's seen all more. He ever did anything good at ever? No, Kevin Spacey could be the shittiest human being on earth. Maybe he's one of them, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the man... I was just saying that to provoke you, dude. I was just saying that to provoke you. Okay. I've known you long enough to know what your response was going to be to that. He is the shittiest person ever, but he's, he still made some great stuff. He was a great actor. He was a great yeah. actor. But the studios were just trying to kick out something. Even the uh, Batman Begins, which came out in that period, didn't do huge business. It did all right. It did well enough yeah. to get a sequel. But it didn't do huge business. Uh, huge business didn't come back until 2008. Yeah. Uh, and 2008 is, I think people may believe that the current boom is punctuated by the Avengers. Maybe it is. But I'm going to say that it's before that. It's, it's, it's 2008 with Iron Man and yeah. The Dark Knight. Mm -hmm. That that dual combo in that year, two movies that did extraordinarily well and were also extraordinarily good movies. Yeah, both of them yeah. are fantastic movies. I still think that that first Iron Man movie, while different oh, from everything else in the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is one of the best movies, top third of the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, um, it goes the old adage: you get what you pay for. And I think studios decided if we're going to do this, we have to get, like, the top-tier people to do it. We And no offense to Billy Zane, back to the Phantom, but if you're getting Billy Zane to headline your movie, 
you're not going to do but so much with it. All right? You get people like your Heath Ledger and uh, your Robert Downey Jr. and folks like that that have good, strong acting ability that can actually communicate it like Christopher Reeve did. I think the reason, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why the first Superman movie started that whole boom was when Christopher Reeve said, I'm here to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. He was believable. You believed that what he was saying was true for him. And I think the fact that finally they decided to put some time and some effort into these films is what got them the big exposure and the big business that they were doing. Because they stopped being, oh, this is the thing that you watch with the popcorn, and they started being good films. Solid, good films, despite what Martin Scorsese wants to say. <laughs> we don't need to see the same movie every two years for 25 years, Martin. Let's move on. Yeah, Scorsese is a whole other thing. And, you know, his opinion is as valid, if not more valid, than uh, anyone else who would speak up in that space. But he's one man, and if to the modern generation, how you define cinema and how you define movies is something different than... You know, you yeah. are still more than welcome to uh, share your opinion that that is not cinema to you, and that could be right to you, but it, it may not be correct uh, in the face of what entertains uh, a modern audience. I'm an old yeah. person, and I love... I'm an old person, too. You're not that much <laughs> older than me, dude. We only separate each other by, what, three, four years? Okay, so we're old people, and we love these movies. Yeah. Uh, just the experience of, even if they are, if you just consider them cinematic thrill rides, it is something unique Yeah, that previous generations, like it may have started with Star Wars, it may have started with the Ten Commandments, but that kind of cinematic spectacle consistently is something that previous generations have not experienced. I so, agree. Even if you think of it as a cinematic thrill ride, that's something new, and it is beautiful. And so that... That actually might be the bulk of the, the draw there. Well, the, the, the bulk of the draw is that as time has gone on, the marketing for these things, the marketing budget for these things, uh, the, the the brands being everywhere, the ability of corporations to keep it in our headspace because of the internet, advertising is constant even if we don't know it. That's probably the other part of that, but the yeah the expense of, of paying to put images on screen that you would not see anywhere else may be the bulk of it. Like, yeah. this idea that these these hero characters are universal is true. The idea of a hero character is universal. The idea of an uberman, somebody who's more powerful, an angelic being who uh, defends humanity is, is kind of universal as well. But it doesn't have to be the tights and spandex class. It just happens to be that in our in our generation. Like, it could be a Wushu master in a 1990s or 2000s Wushu epic. Could be the Lone Ranger, who's able to, to uh, wield a uh, handgun like it's a uh, sharpshooter's rifle. Could be any of that stuff for its time. But this idea of an elevated human who comes in and saves us is not... It's not unique. So oh, it's not unique. We'll go back to the very start of the conversation. Uh, here's this figure who is able to do all of these miraculous and wonderful things, and they're here to save every single one of us. Don't you want to be like them? Uh, come back and hear more about them next week. I mean, that's that's been a thing since, well, since we all came out of the caves in the darkness, and somebody stood up and started talking to us about the multi-gods, and then, of course, the mini-one. Uh, I think... Uh, Go back to what we said at the beginning. I think this is a religion for a lot of folk. And they follow it like a religion. And the religion is starting to spread. Yeah, I mean, as an idea, it definitely is uh, yeah. universal. These, I mean, these, the, the branding of these characters is universal. Like, even though <laughs> Captain America is Captain America, Captain yeah. America is a global brand. Yeah. <laughs> everybody knows, if, at this point, everybody knows who Captain America is. Uh, and everybody probably knows who Chris Evans is. So yeah, well, everybody is... knows who Jesus is. He's the only white Middle Eastern two thousand years ago. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> so we get into the the final period of this exercise, which is which starts which actually does start with the Avengers. One point five billion dollars, a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, it is something that literally made nerds like us cream our pants. Um, like I do remember loving the Dark Knight tremendously and enjoying that experience, the experience of seeing Iron Man in the theater. It's not even close. The experience of seeing Avengers in the theater for the first time was something that was completely unique. It is the movie experience I had been looking for for my entire life, basically. And even though there there are movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe past that, where I've had that kind of experience as well, seeing uh, both Endgame and Infinity War, like in Endgame, I I literally, I, I had tears... Not not sad tears, but I had happy tears streaming down my face in Endgame through like yeah. the entire final sequence as they were going oh, through that. Yeah. But the Avengers is something special, and the the whole sequence that that kicks off, uh, we'll, we'll never see the like again. As we've kind of you mentioned that we'll probably never see any phenomenon like that in uh, the the media landscape uh, in our lifetime. So unique. No. No, I, I, I don't think you will. And I think before you do, again, there's going to be a lot of disappointing things that happen. And if ever it's tried to, and if ever someone tries to recapture it, it's going to fail. Can't You can't force something like that. It's either going to happen or it's not. Yeah. And so now we get to the point where the crux of the conversation becomes true. Like, Superhero movies were big money, big business for probably, what, 15, 20 years up until that point. And it was at that point that they took over the landscape. Every studio wanted to have a tentpole of that kind to make money off of. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody did it like Disney did. So we are squarely, actually, we're probably right past the boom. And because of COVID-19, we can can probably mark it on a calendar. We're probably right past the boom. And we're probably going into another era of cinema. And I believe that uh, these movies do have legs that will continue on, but it will never be quite the same. But going forward, do you think that the cultural landscape of the coming decade, and perhaps even the decade after that, will be dominated by the same kinds of properties? No. 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 Uh, well, don't get me wrong. What what has been done in the last 15 years? And I'm not even going to just say 10 years, uh, even though because that's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Everything that's been done in the last 15 years has been great and wonderful. But before that, I mean, like the 80s, it was all big action, muscle-bound heroes, uh, your Schwarzeneggers, your Stallones, who dominated box off box office revenue. That was the trend. And that was the trend for about a good 10 years. Then you get your secondary trend of whatever the 90s held for us. I think it was rom-coms that were doing a lot of stuff. And then you get into this with the superhero. I don't think you're going to have... I mean, there's always going to be superhero movies that are going to make money at your local Cineplex or now, you know, your local uh, digital downloads. I think there's going to be something else that rises up in the next couple of years that's going to be the big, big money maker for Hollywood. And I just don't know what that, I don't know what that's going to be, but I don't think it's going to be uh, the comic books. I think, like you said, we're past the big boom and they still got a lot more fight left in them, but I don't think you're going to see the next big, big, huge blockbuster come from a comic book film. I think that they will still be big business for a decade to come. Well, oh, yeah. yeah, probably a decade to come. Like, I think that uh, if it does appear in the theater, Wonder Woman 84 will do big business. I think that Black Widow, if it comes out at the right time, will be a billion-dollar movie easily just because we'll be starved for that kind of entertainment. But, yeah, I think that we are probably on the downward trend. What do you think the chances are that James Cameron <laughs> will own the uh, the next decade? With his avatar media so empire, freaking none. <laughs> I'm excited to see what comes next. I'm really happy that I got to live in a generation that, that got this media output because 
Oh, yeah. Growing up as a comic book nerd, it was incredibly fortuitous. I would never have imagined that we would have lived in this generation. So for me, I understand the draw for the larger society. I think I get a kind of clear picture as to how we got here. But, Ray, I just want to thank you tremendously for uh, having come on this. This was super cool. It um, was. Do you have anything that you would like to promote while you're on the show? Yeah. Uh, stay inside. <laughs> yes, That's please, everybody. Like please save as possible so that we can go outside again one day. Exactly. That's the only thing I want to promote. That's the only thing I want to say. Stay inside. You don't Excellent. have to protest. Stay inside. And Frank was able to do it. She was able to spend hours and hours and hours a day in a crawl space. You can stay in your home and download movies. Stay inside. But no, just stay inside and everyone be safe. Excellent. Uh, I uh, wholeheartedly agree with Ray's sentiment. And uh, once again, thank you so much for being on the show, Ray. And thank you, everybody out there, for listening. If you enjoy listening to the episode, there are more interviews to come around a very a huge variety of topics. Uh, I may be recording again this week. It won't be out this week. But just to let you know, this will be an ongoing thing on the My Handle is Jonathan Blade podcast, which can be found and listened to on almost every podcatcher out there. There are ones that I've never heard of that my show is published on. So get out there, listen to me. Get at me on Twitter, or Jonathan Blade at Jakey Broke Hobo Spider-Man. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get to talk to you soon. Thanks for listening.